as much as I love to talk about politics, and trust me, if you guys ever did actually meet me, I really do love to talk about politics. But I don't want this podcast to just be nonstop political drama, political drama. I intend to actually cover different areas where Islam exists and where Muslims exist. And today's episode, we're going to be covering the area of West Africa and the Mali Empire which was an area where Islam plays a significant role in its people's history and its culture. But in the grand scheme of things, and I think we can be honest here, it's often forgotten about. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Muslims in Your Backyard podcast. I'm your host, Khurram Shamim. Thank you for taking some time out of your day to listen to me and to listen to this podcast. As always, I appreciate the support that you guys give. Today's episode, like I mentioned, will be on the Lion King and sort of the foundation of the Mali Empire, but more specifically and sort of the general topic will be about Islam in West Africa. Now, I know it's kind of different than what I covered in the two previous episodes, but like I mentioned in the bio for the podcast, I don't want this just to be about politics, but I also wanted to look at society and culture and just sort of the different areas and places that modern Muslims exist. And I think it's important that when we're looking at Islam in the 21st century, that we don't just contain ourselves to the Middle East. Because yes, Islam comes from the Middle East, but it doesn't stop there. Obviously, Islam went on to the north, to the south, to the east, to the west, and all those areas, wherever Muslims exist, wherever Muslim either culture or just Muslim people exist, is somewhere that I think that as modern Muslims, we need to connect with. We don't need to, you know, absolutely know everything about it, but we should connect with it. And West Africa is a place where Islam has existed for quite some time. But I always felt like West Africa is a place where people don't really look for when they think about Islam. It's somewhere that Muslims have had some pretty substantial impact on, but you never really hear about it. So that's kind of why I wanted to talk about this episode. I want us to not only begin a conversation maybe about learning more about West African Muslims, but also to connect more with West African Muslims and to know more about their culture, or at least I'm not going to talk entirely about their culture, but maybe one aspect of it. And hopefully when you guys are done listening to this episode, you yourself will go and learn more as well. Because I didn't know that much about West African culture either, but learning about you know the Mali Empire and the legend of the Lion King that leads to its foundation, it really made me want to learn more about their culture as well. Now, just before I get right into this episode, I wanted to do one little housekeeping uh, detail. Uh, I, I decided to make the podcast episodes come out every other week, so kind of bi-weekly. Uh, I did want to do it on a weekly basis, but just sort of based on my own schedule and how available I would be, I figured it'd just be better if I did it bi-weekly. I I don't want to promise, you know, weekly and not be able to hit it. So bi-weekly kind of just works better for now. And if anything, uh, I can check it or I can, sorry, I can change it uh, in the future. But enough about that. We should just get right into this because there is quite a bit to cover here and I don't want to make this episode too, too long. So, where did I first begin or find the story? I actually found the story while reading a book called The Lost Islamic History by Firas Al-Khatib. It's F-I-R-A-S-A-L-K-H-A-T-E-E-B. 
this book, again, called Lost Islamic History, is an amazing, amazing, amazing book that really summarizes kind of Muslim history in a very, very neat, tidy, and clean and efficient way in just sort of, uh, I don't know how many pages it is, but it's not even that large of a book. So if you're someone that is maybe interested to learn about history or kind of wants to get into it or just sort of just expand their own knowledge, I 100% guarantee uh, going and reading on it. Like the, the book not only covers, you know, the typical, you know, Arabia and, you know, Islam in, you know, uh, the Middle East, but it also covers Islam in areas like, uh, you know, Central Asia, or actually, no, maybe not Central Asia. It covers it, sorry, it covers Turkey, so kind of the Ottoman Empire. It covers Africa. It covers, you know, Islam in uh, Spain. It really does a phenomenal job about touching upon Islam in so many different areas. So I 100% recommend going out and checking the book if you're interested. Uh, but I, I was reading the book because I myself, I, I love reading about history. And it really caught my attention uh, while reading the, the book because I didn't actually know about the story. And it is only covered shortly in the book itself, but it was something that I'd never heard of and I'd never really heard anyone else bring it up. And, and so it was kind of curious to me. I was like, well, this seems like a pretty interesting story. It's the Lion King. It's obviously a common title because of the movie, but something I, you know, you, you don't really hear about, about this origin story to, to an empire. Right. And, and so I just figured, well, I got to dig into it. And the more I dug into it, the more I realized just not only how interesting it was to learn about the story, but just how interesting it was to learn about West African culture, hence why I'm doing this episode right now. But it's also important to kind of just point out, first off, that the story itself and like a lot of things I'm going to talk about don't necessarily have to do with Islam. So this isn't sort of a really religious episode. I'm not going to be breaking down any sort of hadiths or anything like that, partially also because I'm not a scholar uh, so I can't really do that, but it's going to be focusing more on just sort of the Muslim in West Africa, not Islam in West Africa per se. So the distinction here being not that religious of an episode. Now, that, that being said, before we get right into the story, uh, I wanted to first maybe give a bit of background on the Mali Empire, because that is what uh, we're going to be, or at least that's what the tale itself kind of leads up to. It's the foundation of the Mali Empire. In a sense, it's essentially how the Mali Empire sort of justifies its existence. It sort of justifies it through this tale. So first off, what was the Mali Empire? The, the Mali Empire was located in Western Africa within mon uh, multiple modern African states. And as the name suggests, its main sort of area was what is now modern day Mali. Uh, but it also existed in many other African states like Ghana and in sort of just little areas here and there. Now, of course, those states didn't exist back then, so it's not exactly – I can't exactly say what states it did exist and didn't exist in, but just sort of think of it existing in just the West African area. Now, the empire itself actually existed for quite some time. It exists from about 1230 A.D., to 1670 AD, or in Islamic calendar, that would be 608 after Hijra to 1047 after Hijra. So it exists for about 400-something years, and it's quite some time if you think about it, right? Like, that, there's a lot of things that happen from when it's founded to when the empire really ends. And just to maybe put some stuff in a context here, uh, by the time it's founded, uh, if I'm going to, I might be a bit off on some of these things, but 
by the time that this empire is founded, I believe, yes, Salahuddin and the Third Crusade already happened. I believe that the Mongol invasions have probably already begun. Um, at this point, Islam in India is pretty much becoming established. So the Delhi Sultanate, for example, is ex- exists at this point. I think it should be them. Um, at this point, Islam has already expanded to areas uh, like uh, Spain, for example. Al-Andalus already exists. Um, and I think I think by at this point, Islam is already spreading to other areas like East Asia, uh, etc., etc. So a lot has happened. And oh, also at this point, I think 1230 AD, um, I think the Turkish people have already sort of migrated to Anatolia. I don't know if the Ottoman Empire... Is ex- exists yet? It might have. Maybe they might have like started the foundation of it. Like you know, the Turkish tribes started to gather together, um, but I don't think they've actually fully founded yet. But regardless, my, my point is is that a lot happens. You know, around 1230 AD and into 1670 AD. By the time it's like 1670, uh, I think at that point, basically the two major empires in Islam are the Ottoman Empire and the Safavid dynasty in Iran. So, or, and, and also the Mughal Empire in India. So there's about three major empires that are existing that a lot of people will know about. But again, the Mali Empire is one of those that people don't really talk about, even though they existed during all this time. Like all this was happening in the world. Everyone's going crazy. The Mongol invasion's happening. And the people in Mali are probably just chilling. You know, they're just relaxing. They're having the time of their life. <laughs> the whole world's going to hell. Everyone in Mali is just chilling. They're having the time of their life. They don't care. But I wanted to focus on one ruler in particular in the Mali Empire's history. And some of you may have heard of him before, may have, may have not, I, I don't know. Uh, but the most well-known ruler of the Mali Empire was a man by the name of Mansa Musa. Uh, so Mansa is not actually his first name. Mansa is a title that's given to the kings of the Mali Empire. And it essentially translates to emperor or king uh, or really in sort of a colloquial term means the king of kings. And so it's a common title that many empires or uh, kingdoms would take where they call themselves the king of kings to sort of emphasize just how great of a king they were. It's pretty common, right? So the king of kings is what his uh, title is. I don't actually know what his first name was. It might have been Musa or it might have been his last name. I actually didn't check up on that. I should have checked up on that. My apologies. But essentially, his title was Mansa Musa. And so he claims the throne after his brother, whose name is Muhammad ibn Ku, actually decides to sail across the Atlantic Ocean in search of new lands and then just never returned. And so when he never returned, they just made Mansa Musa king. It's kind of, you know, the, the his brother himself kind of is an interesting story as well. Like, I'd love to know if there's any sort of been you know, archaeological discoveries or anything like that. Like, did he actually make it across the Atlantic Ocean? Did he die at sea? Uh, It's kind of hard to say. And from what I was able to find, there was no real explanation as to why he decided one day to just sort of travel across the Atlantic Ocean. He just sort of decides, I'm going to travel across the Atlantic Ocean. Okay, Uh, good luck, I guess. (laughs) I don't know what else you're supposed to say if someone says that. Uh, but, uh, you know, unfortunately, of course, he never returns, so then Mansa Musa becomes king. But his most well-known story, uh, you know, aside from this, is probably his story of Hajj. And this is w- one of the, you know, one of the major stories of the Mali Empire because it not only shows the wealth of the Mali Empire, but it also showed the, the piety 
that Mansa Musa himself had. So while he's going on Hajj, you know, he goes with a, a big caravan of about uh, 60,000 people. It's a ballpark estimate, but it's supposed to be approximate 60,000 people that he goes with. And while going there, he brought with himself 12,000 people. So this, of the 60,000, 12,000 of them were people that he himself uh, sort of invited and brought along. And of those 12,000, each of them all had valuable silk robes and were carrying two kilograms of gold each that they had gotten from Mali's mines. So just to put this into perspective, you know, the 12,000 people each had silk robes that were basically, you know, that was not something you could attain unless you were very, very rich. And just on top of that, why not? They also had two kilograms of gold, just, you know, just brought the brought it with them just casually. Now, that's how rich they were. But they also had camels that were carrying bags of gold dust that they then handed out to poor people along the route. So on one hand, you see their own you know, wealth where they have valuable silk robes. But Mansa Musa, while going on this hajj, is handing out gold to people as he goes along the route. Because, I mean, it's common when you're going on hajj or umrah, you know, you kind of give charitable donations to people that need it. But he's really going out of his way. You know, he's basically gathered gold dust and sort of gold. Um, it wasn't like actual dust. I don't think so. Like it was like gold, like pieces or whatnot that he's sort of just handing out to anyone who's in need. There was no, you know, you need to be of an alliance with me or you need to be in an alliance with my empire, nothing like that. He just started handing out gold. So you can really see that the piety, both the richness and the piety that he uh, exhibits here. And I also want to connect this back to the first episode where I talked about, you know, Jeff Bezos and, um, you know, the the need if, if he was, you know, Muslim and he would be paying as a god and just how much he could change, right? And, and this kind of shows it, right? Like if he really wanted to, Jeff Bezos could probably do what Mansa Musa is doing. You know, Mansa Musa is considered one of the richest uh, kings in the history of the world. And I don't think it'd be that crazy to say that if Jeff Bezos really wanted to, he could probably give away money for free and probably change a lot of people's lives. And it's just, again, it's just unfortunate that that's just not something that's, I guess, feasible to happen or that he's just not willing to do. Now, there's one last part of the story is that 10 years later, 10 years down the road, after Mansa Musa has done his hajj and, and left, the Egyptian, or sorry, I shouldn't say Egyptian, the North African traveler, Ibn Battuta, he, he goes by Egypt about 10 years later. And, and when he's going there in his notes, he actually, uh, he mentions that the economy in Egypt, for at least gold, was still wrecked because of all the gold that Mansa Musa had given out. Mansa Musa had caused inflation among gold in Egypt because he handed out so much gold that gold had basically decreased in its price. Like, this is gold. This is one of the most valuable materials that we have. And Mansa Musa handed out so much that he just devalued the entire uh, you know, region's gold because it just wasn't that valuable anymore because so many people had it. Like, again, it reinforces the thing about Jeff Bezos as well. Like if you really wanted to, Jeff, you could probably help a lot of people. Okay, aside from my grievances with Jeff Bezos, I think I've talked about that enough or more than I probably should have. I feel like I should just get right into the, the legend because I wanted to quickly summarize it. Uh, it's a very long story. Like the one that I found online 
is about 38 pages long, and I am not going through that. And even like summaries of it were not short. They were pretty long as well. There's a lot of details to go through. So I just wanted to go through a quick summary. And if you guys want, I encourage you to go out and read it for yourselves. Like again, it's not an Islamic story, uh, but it's just a good little piece of culture or just a, a story to read. You know, kind of like uh, what's it called, uh, 1001 Arabian Nights. You know, no one who's Arab or Central Asian or, you know, Middle Eastern, whatever, no one actually believes in it. But, I mean, it's just a tale, right? It's whatever. It's literature. If you want to read it, you can, right? Uh, this one, however, I'm going to break down the, the legend just real quickly. Uh, and then I'm just going to go into uh, what its kind of places in the culture of West Africa from what I could find and sort of where it uh, belongs in their area of literature. So, let's just get right into it. Beginning, the story begins... Uh, with uh, a man named Nahari Magan Konate. He is the king of uh, Mandika, or which is a sort of a people in the West African region. Uh, Nahari Magan Konate, or I'll just call him King Konate, he's going to be the father uh, of the man who, who founds Mali's empire, who goes by the name of Sunjata Kieta. Uh, and it's also important to note here, uh, I, I cannot pronounce West African names, so I will be mispronouncing a lot of names. If you are West African, I really, really apologize. Anyways, the story goes that King Konate, basically, he's minding his own business. He's just, you know, being a king, doing kingly things. Eventually, uh, a soothsayer, yes, a soothsayer, I know, like I said, it's not an Islamic story. A soothsayer shows up, tells him a prophecy that apparently if he marries an ugly woman, she will give him a mighty king, and that mighty king's name will, of course, be Sunjata Kieta. At this time, King Konate already has a wife uh, who, and a son, so you can kind of see where there's maybe a bit of, uh, uh, you know, I guess, opposition here. But eventually, you know, the prophecy comes true because he does meet this ugly woman. Uh, he marries her, and then uh, they have a child who's Sunjata Kieta, um, and one of the, you know, the, I guess the trial that Kieta has to go through is that he's unable to walk early in his life. So when he's a kid, he's just unable to walk. And so it's sort of his struggle, like a lot of heroes do in a lot of these tales, that he has to overcome. And so eventually uh, Kieta and his mother start to feel a lot of uh, opposition and a lot of anger from uh, the, the first wife and the first son of King Konate, and then eventually King Konate dies, and the first son, whose name is Denkaran, uh, he succeeds the throne, even though King Konate wants Sunjeta to take the throne, but instead Denkaran does. And so then this causes sort of a fight amongst them. Uh, Sunjata and his mother uh, start to feel, uh, again, further sort of opposition, and eventually Sunjata, just in his sort of heroic moment, can't take that his mother's, you know, attacked so much that he then decides, I'm going to stand up. So what happens is that he takes a piece of iron, tries to stand himself up, it breaks. So then instead he takes a branch from a, a local tree, or I, I think it's a, it's called a, a baobab tree. I think it's a tree native to West Africa. He takes that and then he's able to walk again. He's able to stand up just like that. And in another part of the story or in another tale of the story, his mother just commands him to walk and then he just gets up and starts walking. Uh, and then moving from this, they then flee because they don't want to face any more of the opposition from uh, Denkaran and his mother. And so then they flee to a nearby place called uh, the Kingdom of Mema, or Mema, sorry. 
And essentially, that's where they exi- they kind of stay for a while, and then Sunjata starts to integrate more with Mema society, where he then becomes a great warrior, and as you expect, he becomes as strong as a lion. Uh, and eventually, what happens is that after this, you know, years go by. They've been in a- another kingdom for quite some time, and then an evil sorcerer by the name of Sumaro Kante. Uh, from the Soso people, invades the kingdom of Mandika and essentially uh, de- uh, destroys the, the kingdom and Denkaran is thrown out of, uh, you know, he, he flees and, you know, the kingdom is basically occupied now. And so then the people of Mandika then reach out to Sunjata and they ask him to come back and take the throne, uh, which he eventually does. He forms an alliance with other smaller kingdoms. They f- work together and they beat Samara Kante, and then, long last, Sunjata is then crowned uh, the Mansa, or the King of Kings, and he eventually establishes the Mali Empire. Now, I, I know I went through that real quickly. I, I apologize that I didn't go through any more of the details, but really, it's a long story, and there's no way I would have had time to actually go through everything. So again, if that even sounds interesting to you, you know, please do go out and uh, you know find the story yourself. I 100% encourage you to, to go and, and read up on it. It's, it's a really interesting story if you're kind of interested in sort of the mythological or sort of legend uh, type of stories. Um, I, I will probably add a link in the bio, either um, in, in the, the, you know, the podcast bio or I'll add it on my Instagram page which is also just Muslims in your backyard. So whichever one I added to, go find it there. And yeah, if you're interested, go read more about it. But just reflecting on this story and its sort of significance to the region, uh, there's a lot of different layers to this. I think the first part that I want to first talk about is just the cultural aspect of it. And then I'm, I'm going to get into uh, sort of its, uh, I guess, you know, the Islamic component to it in that there's sort of an Islamicization of the story over time uh, and then lastly, I want to talk about uh, the impact that the modern world and more specifically the colonialist projects in West Africa have had on the story and what that means for us uh, as Muslims. So again, just to begin, obviously like the, the story is not Islamic, but culturally it, it does have you know, a lot of significance in the West African region. From what I could find is that in West Africa, specifically in Mali, the story is still taught in like schools and uh, in like kind of public spaces, and it's kind of well known. I don't know how many people actually still, you know, remember it, you know, rigorously. Um, but from what I could find is that it's sort of just like a tale that's told about, yeah, you know, this is the the Mali Empire, and this is a story of its foundation. Right. So, again, you know, I, I don't know if the people themselves in Mali still hold on to it dearly. Um, but from what I understand, it does still have some significance within the culture. And, you know, I mean, a lot of us probably come from diverse cultures. And I'm sure that we're told about, you know, from our parents or from our grandparents about, you know, the stories about the people that came before. And they probably look at it in, in the same way. Now, culturally speaking, and, and this was actually really interesting, but uh, the the stories that the the West African people have in sort of just a, a broad way uh, is usually told by these people known as griots. I, I think I pronounced that right. It's spelled G R I O T S, and, and griots are essentially uh, storytellers. They're singers, and they're like uh, 
advisors for people. They, they, their significance is that they are the essential storytellers for a people. So you can understand their area where you know a certain people, rather than maybe writing down everything, they would have a griot who would just know it, right? So certain cultures they don't necessarily write down everything. You know, even Arab society, for example, right? Uh, the people of Mecca, they didn't write down everything because maybe they didn't have as much access to paper. So instead of, you know, doing that, what they did is they just memorized everything. And, it, you know, it's kind of interesting, right? Like it's similar to, uh, you know, I guess Muslims in a way in that like the Quran, for example, yes, it's written down, but we also memorize it, right? So even if someone is to destroy the physical manifestation of the Quran, right, the actual paper version, we still have it memorized, Right, so you can kind of see a, a similarity there. Now, I'm not I'm not trying to drive too many similarities, but again, you know, the oral tradition in West Africa was was really important, and even to this day, like griots still do exist in West African culture. I've read conflicting things about how significant they still are. There's obviously been a lot of change because, for example, a griot who knows this, the story of a tribe may not be that impactful anymore because maybe people don't really live in that sort of scenario, right? People don't maybe uh, live in the scenario of always doing things based on a tribal aspect, but now more of, you know, the state aspect. But they, they still do exist. And there's, you know, there's still people who uh, listen to them tell stories or, you know, listen to their songs and whatnot. So it, it is a really important part of, of the culture as well. And, and again, you know, this is something really interesting to learn about where Islam exists and where Muslims exist, right? We, we, who, how many of us knew about griots? How many of us knew, uh, you know, that the, the storytelling aspects in West Africa was was really important? I'm willing to bet not a lot of us did. I, I for example, didn't. Right? I'll, I'll admit that. I, I, I'll plead ignorance that I didn't know that much about West African culture. And, you know, learning about this, learning about how they tell stories or the importance of community in their society, it's, it's really interesting. And, and I, I hope that I can learn more about it as well. And I hope you can also learn more about it as well. And so then the second part here that I wanted to focus on was, you know, the, I guess, the Islamic aspect of this. Um, I think that's what I said the second part. I actually forgot what I said second. Oh, a anyways, uh, the the thing is, is that the story itself is not Islamic, but there's some Islamicization of the story. So the story itself likely came from before Islam had really become uh, impactful in, in West Africa. Um, it, it's kind of hard to say exactly when West Africa sort of becomes Muslim. Um, but it's also important to know that West Africa isn't entirely Muslim. A lot of the countries are Muslim-majority countries, uh, but it's not 100% clear when Islam actually becomes a majority religion. Um, for example, even during the time of Mansa Musa, uh, he was also building a lot of Islamic, scholar, or Islamic libraries or buildings or masjids, I should say, because he was still you know, trying to make Islam bigger in West Africa. So... The, the Islamicization of, Af or of West Africa sorry, happens over sort of a, a longer time. So that's why this story, for example, in some aspects, you, you'll see if you actually read the, the full story, some of the characters actually praise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? But at the same time, there's, like, there's some really hardcore non-Islamic aspects to the story. For example, soothsaying, right? Like we know soothsaying is haram. 
right? The whole, you know, I can tell the future, you know, I, I can speak to animals, that, that's haram. That's 100% haram, right? Um, but at the same time, you can kind of see there's like a progress, there's like a dividing line where the story likely came before Islam came to its people. But when Islam does, they still kept the story, but they added in Islamic concepts to it. Now, with all that being said, I don't want to diminish the importance of Islam in West Africa. Because, like I said with the story of Mansa Musa, Islam is a very important aspect to West Africa. A lot of these West Africans are very, very pious Muslims. And, you know, again, you know, when we're talking about, you know, piety or even just about the centers of Islamic knowledge, people often don't talk about West Africa, even though if you go through West African history or even just modern West African history, there's a lot of great scholarship that comes out of West Africa. There's a lot of great, you know, Muslim minds or Islamic knowledge that comes out of West Africa. And it's, it's a shame sometimes that people sort of diminish uh, how pious or how uh, religious some aspects of West African society really is uh, in relation to Islam. And, and one of my favorite, I, I think, you know, areas is uh, Timbuktu. Uh, I think I pronounced that right. Timbuktu, it's spelled T-I-M-B-U-K-T-U. It was the capital of the Mali Empire. And what's so interesting about it is that it was at one point actually a center of Islamic knowledge in Africa. You know, a lot of people think of Mecca, Baghdad, you know, Damascus, or, you know, Constantinople, or Istanbul, I should say, or Delhi. But Timbuktu, you know, during the, the height of the Mali Empire, and in some empires that came after it, it was a very vital area for knowledge. And many of the greatest, you know, African scholars came from Timbuktu. And, you know, it, it was at one point supposed to be uh, one of the safest cities in, in the region. In fact, Ibn Battuta, uh, he, when he visited uh, the region of, you know, the Mali Empire, he commented about how safe everything was. And he talked about how pious everyone was as well. He, he praised a lot of the piety of the West African people. And he talked about how, you know, some of them uh, were, you know, always going to the prayers. They were always doing, you know, five daily prayers that Islam was really strong in the lives of its people. And, you know, as much as I, I talked about maybe the un-Islamic concepts of the story of, you know, the Lion King, I don't want to diminish the importance that Islam again played in the lives of these people. I also want to go back to a story that I actually read in Lost Islamic History by Firas al-Khatib. And it's sort of a small story, but it was something that I think really emphasized how important religion was to the people of West Africa. And so the way it goes is that in the early 1400s, a scholar of fiqh from Hijaz, which is basically like the, the Makkah, Medina, uh, West Saudi Arabia, essentially, uh, his name was Abdul, Abdul Rahman al-Tamini. He traveled to Timbuktu only to realize that the level of scholarship was so high there that you would have to go to Fez, which was in North Africa, first to take prerequisite courses before he could study with Mali's scholars. Now just think about that for a second, right? You would think it the other way around, that the people of Mecca right, the, the descendants of the Prophet Muhammad or the descendant of the Prophet's, I guess, cousins and aunts or whatnot, they would be the most pious. But the story says the other thing. The people of Timbuktu 
were more pious and, and you know, knew more than someone who's coming from Mecca, of all places. That's how important Islam was in their lives and how, you know, how strong Islam played uh, in their life. You know, they were not just, oh, West Africans who, you know, were, you know, wishy-washy with Islam. No, Islam is so important. It's a vital component to the people in that area. And I, and I think that, again, as Muslims, you know, when we're connecting with the 21st century, we need to connect with Islam beyond just Arabia and the Middle East. And then lastly, you know, the, the aspect of colonialism and then the Western concepts here, right? There, there's a lot of Western, uh, I want to say, I don't know how to put this, I guess, kindly, but Western sources often diminish the significance of great achievements in non-Western areas. And some of them are deliberate, some of them is maybe unintentional, uh, but when you look at you know, the way the world history is told, right? How many of us took world history in high school? I, I took world history. And, and I remember the way it goes is this. It talks about ancient Mesopotamia, ancient Egypt, ancient Rome, ancient Greece, skips like I don't know, thousands of years, and then it starts with talking about the medieval ages in Europe. That's wrong. Because there's a lot of history that happens before that that's just not talked about. Right? People talk about the Renaissance and people talk about you know, the achievements of, of Europe. Why does no one talk about the knowledge that existed in Timbuktu? Why does everyone seem to forget that Timbuktu was once one of the safest, was once one of the most pious, was once one of the most illustrious cities in the world? It didn't exist in Europe. It didn't exist in America. It didn't exist in France or England. It existed in Africa. It existed in Africa. You know, now people think about Africa and all they think about is uh, the colonialism or they'll, they'll talk about, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the poverty that exists within Africa. That's not how African society always existed. Islam played a big role in the progress of West African society as well. And, you know, when we as the modern Muslims, you know, especially as the younger Muslims, it's, it's our duty again to correct those wrongs. People don't know about West African society or West African history. So why don't we learn it and tell others about it? Seriously, you know, like I read it in a book, you know, you guys can read it. Maybe you'll learn it from me or you'll learn it from someone else or, you know, you'll teach it to someone else. And of course, you know, you don't need to be an expert on the culture. Or you don't need to be an expert on the history, but just knowing a bit, just being able to correct someone when they make a mistake, like saying, Nothing significant ever happened in Africa. And, and I know some of you will laugh at that. And, and if you, those of you who are African, I'm, I'm not trying to insult you in any way. But there are people that believe that. There are people that will say, whatever came from Africa, you know, like what, is, what was ever significant there? Timbuktu was significant. It was a center of trade and it was a center of knowledge. And that's important. And we can't, again, let other people rewrite our history for us. It's important as modern Muslims to, to connect with those people, to connect with who they were. Because, you know, as a Pakistani Muslim, I often think of Islam and I think of South Asia and Arabia. But Muslims, we do not attain to just one ethnicity. We do not attain to one culture. We attain to multiple cultures. If you want to understand what the word Muslim means, then you need to eliminate your own biases. You need to eliminate your own biases about where Islam and Muslims exist. And you need to start to learn more 
but the diversity that exists within our religion. I went through the process by learning about history, you know, and I encourage you all to do the same. Now, with all that being said, thank you guys so much for listening to today's episode on the Lion King and more specifically on Islam in West Africa and the foundation of the Mali Empire. I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode and I hope that it was interesting enough for you to maybe do some of your own research on Islam in West Africa. And as always, like I said, I encourage you guys to do your own research and to learn more. I hope that this podcast was at least maybe a, a tiny bit informative <laughs> or, or at least helpful in sort of uh, increasing maybe your interest uh, in learning about West Africa. But either than that, again, thank you guys so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, please remember to leave a five-star review on whatever podcast host that you're listening to this from. And if you can, please go follow me on Instagram. It's Muslims in Your Backyard. I will probably be, or I will, sorry, be updating on episodes and just making general posts on my Instagram account. It'll also be, again, my main place for any sort of communication with you guys. But either than that, again, thank you guys so much for listening. Always appreciate the support. And inshallah and alafis, we'll meet again.